The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now asking that you would please permit this to be an occasion where we can come around the empty tomb and adore your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would please help us, those of us who know you, to be so filled with joy in this moment, remembering that we have a King who is alive. Lord, I pray that you would cause those who don't know you, those who are currently dead in their trespasses and sins, to be made alive through the new birth that comes from your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome to our Resurrection Sunday service. This is an empty room. I am standing here by myself. And this is the time when I would traditionally say to you, He is risen. And you would reply by saying, That's right. He is risen indeed. I am so thankful for each and every member of our church. I am so thankful that often when I get to say that, I hear the response of the people declaring and proclaiming and affirming that Jesus is alive. And I am saddened that we aren't able to be physically together today. But I am thankful that you who are part of the church, many took part in this scripture reading that we did today. Thank you for sending those videos in, and thank you, Ben, for putting together that compilation of the reading. If you have not yet seen the scripture reading for today, pause this video and locate that one so you can understand what it is that we're going to be talking about this morning. If you are watching from our church service site, you can find it in the scripture reading section. If you are finding this video on YouTube, you can locate the link in the description below. Please go watch that before finishing this video. Those texts are vital to understand what we're talking about because I am not attempting to speak to you about my own persuasions or opinions. My desire is to tell you exactly what God says in his word. And I want you to know that what I am speaking is grounded and founded and built upon what he has to say. So please watch that video first. This is very important because as you probably well know, People find a lot of joy and delight in this season. People have a lot of happiness regarding Easter. But many people do so for illegitimate reasons. Their hope is in the wrong thing. There's nothing wrong with Easter eggs filled with candy or chocolate bunnies or blooming flowers or budding trees. Those are all good things. Those are actually great things. In fact, I'm very happy for those things, and they are causes for us to give thanks to God and to worship But ultimately, none of those things or any of the other trappings of this so-called holiday are designed to point us to the main thing. We are to focus our attention now on the actual cause of our gathering, the actual cause of our worship. We have a risen king, a risen savior. So today, we set our attention on the resurrection. And it is vital that we do not underestimate or discount the significance of the fact that Jesus not only died... He also raised. The Christian faith stands or falls on this single event. If Christ has been raised, then he truly is the Son of God, and he truly is worthy of your fealty and your allegiance and your obedience with your entire life. 
But as Deborah read earlier for us, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What I am doing right now is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Today's sermon is really only half a sermon. The first half was preached on Friday, in which I have referred to it as a brief biography of death. And this morning, we're going to take the look in the opposite direction, a brief biography of life. In the beginning, when God was creating everything that exists, he did so how? By speaking them into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Or, he says, let the seas teem with living creatures. And, of course, they had to teem with living creatures. God spoke things into existence. But, when God created man, he took a very different, much more intimate approach He formed him out of the dust, it says in Genesis 2, verse 7. That he formed him out of the ground, and then he breathed life into his nostrils. And he calls it here, the breath of life. And then it says, and the man became a living creature. Our origin is different than every other living thing on the planet. The Hebrew word here for breathed is the word Ruah. You can almost hear it, the, the sound of Ruah, breathing. God brought Adam to life. How? By employing his own breath to send it into him and give him life. And what happened? Adam lived. And he experienced not only physical life, but also spiritual life as well. He enjoyed union and fellowship with God. Look back at Friday's sermon for just a moment. We need to remember two quick things. First, it is that death is not defined by what it is. Rather, it is defined by what it is not. Death is simply the lack of life. It's also important for us to look back and see that there are three types of death in the Bible. There are physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Likewise, we are going to see the same is true for life. There is physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. The Bible teaches us that you were born physically alive, but the spiritual part of you came forth a stillborn, just like every other person except for Jesus himself. Every other person was born in the line of Adam, and therefore we were born physically capable, physically alive, spiritually dead. And eternal life is contingent upon whether or not you ever experience spiritual life. So in order to systematically examine the nature of life, let's consider each form in turn. Let's begin by examining physical life. In one sense, what do I really need to tell you about physical life? I mean, I don't need to explain it to you. You understand by your God-given faculties and by instinct and by experience exactly what it means to be alive. But at the same time, there definitely are aspects of life that people really don't seem to understand. For example, the overwhelming majority of people who have ever walked this planet have not recognized that God is the one who gave them life, that God is the one who causes them to exist. As Paul references, for example, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, when he says, In him we live and move and have our being. Here we get a little bit of a sense of the depth of the human experience. Life 
is more than just awareness. We have life, but we also have the ability to move. And in that, he's speaking about the fact that we are able to, with our freedom, do what we want to do in accordance with our nature. You can do whatever you like as long as you stay within the bounds of what it means to be human. God has permitted you to do that. He has allowed you to use your life to do what you desire to do. And it is only in him that you have your being. Ontology is the study of existence, the study of being. Why do you exist rather than not exist? Philosophers have sought to answer that question for centuries, even millennia. But this question of ontological purpose has an answer, and we know the answer. We live and we move and we have our being, we have our existence, our ontological reason for purpose, uh, uh, purpose for existing is in fact because God has created us and he is sustaining our existence. It is by him that we have life. In him we live and move and have our being. So to quote the obnoxious yet very accurate children's song, he's got the whole world in his hands. And that means that your life is held in his hand as well. So consider yourself, your entire life, everything about who you are is within the proverbial hand of God, as if it were between his thumb and his index finger. That is your life, and he can do with it whatever he wills. He can continue to preserve it and protect it, or he can destroy it and snuff it out in an instant, just like that. It is up to him. He makes that decision. Consider the way that 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, crisply explains this by saying, "...the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive." He brings down to Sheol, which means the grave, and he raises up. You are physically alive because, and only because, God is allowing you to be alive. And as his creation, you are not a morally free agent. Let me explain. God, as I mentioned before, has given you the ability to do what you want to do. In fact, I would argue that you have never done anything except because you wanted to do them. You might say, well, I've done a lot of things I don't want to do. I didn't want to go to work yesterday, but I did go to work. Well, in that case, there are competing interests of desire. You didn't want to go to work, but you did want a paycheck. You might say, I didn't want to stay home in this house where I've been stuck for days and I wanted to go out and and do whatever I normally do and go to the store and I don't want to have to wear a mask. But remember, there are competing interests, and ultimately, one desire always wins out. You do what you want to do, and God has given you the ability to live however you want. But God has not given you the authority to live however you want. He will permit you to sin. He will permit you to transgress his commands. But if you sin, there will always be a reckoning. Your life must conform to God's commands 100% of the time. And if they do not, you are worthy of the judgment of God because you are a lawbreaker. Now you might say, I think I'm actually a pretty decent human being. And you compare yourself to others and you say, I think my good deeds outweigh my bad. And that God would look at me and he would say, I think that's a pretty good guy. But James chapter 2 verse 1 addresses that by saying, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's you and that's me. We are all guilty. Before God, we have used our lives in an inappropriate manner. The Bible says that God cares about everything that you do. 
For example, your words. Your words matter. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That is an, an, uh, an, a serious indictment to those of us who use social media. All of those things that you say, you will give an account. What about Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14? It goes even further to say, God will bring every deed into judgment. Every action you do will be judged with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you see that every secret thing you think you have ever hidden away God is going to require an account from you? Do you realize that he sees everything that you have done? You might say, well, that wasn't really hurting anybody, whatever it is. But ultimately, your sin is not primarily against those in your sphere of influence. They are not against your boss or your country or your family. Your sins are against God. And God is carefully examining everything that you do. Even your secret sins matter. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In short, your physical life is granted to you and is, it is sustained by God. Therefore, you are responsible to spend your life in perfect allegiance and obedience to him. However, none of us have actually done that. You have not done that. I have not done that. We are guilty in this physical life of using our bodies to rebel against him, using our minds to run from him, using everything that we have, all of the gifts God has given to us, we have turned them and perverted them to use them for the purposes of idolatry and injustice and evil. We have sinned. So we have used our physical life in a way that is abhorrent to God which has affected, by the way, our spiritual and our eternal life. So let's just hit the pause button briefly on physical life, and let's go on and consider now spiritual life, and we're going to circle back to this in a few minutes. As I mentioned before, in the original creation, God designed man to have both physical and spiritual components. You are, by nature of being from the line of Adam, born physically alive with physical life in your body, but without the breath of spiritual life in you. Let me show you four quick examples that show that your spiritual death comes from the point of your physical existence, comes from the point where you were physically a child, when you were born. God promised, by the way, to never flood the earth again. We talked about that on Friday. But not because mankind got better or because they figured it out or determined that they would never again do what they had done before. Rather, we read in Genesis 8.21 why God has given this promise that he will never again flood the earth. He could just keep hitting the reset button over and over and over every time we become sinful. But instead, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why not just wipe out the world again? Why not just destroy us with a flood now? Because wickedness, God knows, is with us and in us from the time we are small children, or the word he uses here, youth. David explains his depravity as being something that was in him all the way from his inception. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. A couple pages later, over in Psalm 58 3, David would add, the wicked are estranged 
from the womb. You are estranged from God from the womb. They go astray from birth, he says. The beloved apostle summarizes it very simply in John chapter 3, verse 6, by saying, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. This is what Ephesians 2 is referring to when it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The spirit part of you was dead on arrival because of sin. So what has to happen here? What's the What's the cure? What's, what's the thing that will cause us to have spiritual life? Marco and Lillian read it so well for us this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See the link here. The way he describes grace that leads to salvation is that he gives us new life. He literally makes us alive. To use another biblical metaphor, in order to have spiritual life, there must be a second birth. You must be born again. Or if we want to translate it literally, you must be born from above. That is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. His entire nighttime conversation with his teacher of the law boils down to one simple truth. That someone can only experience eternal life if they first experience the new birth. You probably know that story. You probably remember how Nicodemus scoffed at this idea about, you know, what in the world am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to climb back up into my mother's womb in order to be born a second time? Listen to how Jesus answers that question. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is physical birth, and the spirit, that is spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit, which is capital S, Holy Spirit, is spirit. Everyone watching this video falls into the first category. By nature, by definition of the fact that you are watching this video and hearing my voice, you are alive. You are physically alive. But it is very likely that not everybody who is watching this video has spiritual life as the result of being born again from the Holy Spirit. It seems clear from the text the Nicodemus must have been shocked by this answer. Now we know that he was stunned because Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I imagine this man Nicodemus, for the first time maybe in his entire life, being speechless, not knowing how to respond, having his jaw wide open, laying on the floor. What am I supposed to say to that? And Jesus says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, remember that word I shared with you earlier, that Hebrew word, ruah, breath? Well, here we see the Greek version of that word. The word for wind and breath and spirit are all the same word, pneuma. In the word pneuma, we see that Jesus is using a play on words here. He is comparing the Holy Spirit to the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't command the wind. In fact, Nicodemus, you cannot even comprehend the wind. You can't determine where it's coming from or where it's going. Likewise, the Spirit gives life to whomever he wants, 
and how he wants, when he wants, he does so outside of your command. Let's consider this metaphor of new birth a little bit closer. What is Jesus trying to do here for Nicodemus? He is attempting to move the conversation of salvation and the concept of being redeemed away from the pharisaical notion of a works-based faith. He is trying to tell this man who is trying to get to heaven by checking off a lot of boxes, that will not get you there. Recently, my wife gave birth to our fifth child, Caspian Ambrose. I'm saddened that many of you have not got to meet this baby yet because he is so cute and he is so sweet and he is so happy and he is so fun and he laughs and he smiles and he giggles. He's starting to get that little attitude that babies start to get around this time. And what a delight he has been. Caspian, however, did not choose to be born. He did not decide it was going, he was going to pop into existence. In fact, he has been completely passive in the entire process. Likewise, you did not decide to be born. You did not determine that you were going to come into existence. You were passive in that process. That is the picture that Jesus is using. That is the metaphor that he employs because he wants you to know that God is the one who initiates salvation. God must be the one that makes us alive. We cannot be saved unless we are first born again. Another word for that is regeneration. Regeneration precedes faith. So we have an order of salvation here. Regeneration occurs. And then when we have a regenerated heart, when God makes us alive, as we could use in the Old Testament language, when he removes the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh, it is then and only then that we have the gift of faith and repentance and we begin to trust in Christ. We do so because the part of us that was dead is now alive. God must make us alive. Well, what does that have to do with Easter, you might say? This is a very strange Sunday morning service. I've never gone to a Resurrection Sunday that sounds like this. And not just because you're sitting around on your couch in your pajamas, but because of the content. The answer of what does this have to do with Easter is it has everything to do with Resurrection Sunday. And here is why. Because if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sin. If Christ has not been raised, you are still dead in your sin. You are no longer able to be alive spiritually. There is no hope that your spiritual side will ever come to life. You cannot be born again. Rather, you will remain in death. Consider some of the effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Karen read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. This speaks to the fact that God will use the same power and the same authority to give us new life, just like he did with Jesus. The resurrection is our proof. Henry read for us in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk with him in newness of life. We get to walk in new life, but notice what that means. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not just pointing to a future bodily resurrection. It is speaking to a current reality that we are supposed to walk in newness of life now. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 explains part of the purpose of the resurrection this way. He says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Remember how your life is required to be perfect before God. It has certainly not been perfect before God, which means you must either be justified or you must experience 
punishment. Those are your options. You must be justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or you must experience the full, unvented wrath and fury of God forever for your cosmic crimes against your Creator. But the resurrection occurred so that Jesus might justify you. Consider the passage that J. Angelus read, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. But I'm actually going to back up a little bit and begin in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Notice this is past tense. If you have been raised. This is how Paul is describing salvation. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Typically, if you say somebody has died, you would not speak about their life. But here he says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what in the world is going on here? It means that you have newness of life that is unlike how you lived before. The old you is gone. These verses reveal that at our conversion, there was a radical shift that occurred in us. Spiritually, we have been made alive. And at that moment, there was also a death to the old you, your old self. Our new life is hidden with Christ in God. This is to indicate the permanence and the safety of our life. But we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Occasionally, the Bible will use the metaphor of physical creation to describe spiritual transformation. Uh, Morgan Wolford, thank you, Morgan. I know you're watching. Uh, she expertly read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which helps to, helps to explain this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. What does that mean? The old has died. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you have been made new. You have been brought to newness of life. The empty tomb is good news because it means that you have spiritual life. It means that you can become a new creation. You do not have to continue on in spiritual death any longer. So, so far we have learned that we are physically alive and that we must be born again to spiritual life. But what about eternal life? This is something that people, I think, tend to misunderstand. Many people will use the term eternal life as a synonym for heaven. But the two, they certainly are linked, but they are not synonyms. So what is eternal life, according to the Bible? Well, we see, as we will look into carefully, that eternal life is both physical and spiritual. Let's examine these in reverse order by answering the question, when does eternal life begin? Jesus answers this for us in John chapter 6, verse 47, among other places. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Has eternal life. H-A-S, has eternal life. Present tense. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have new life that will last forever. Your belief is an indication that God has made you alive and has made you capable of responding rightly to the gospel. Now, obviously, this is not speaking about eternal physical life here because in the present, we do not expect to live forever in this physical body. But it does mean that you have spiritual life and this relationship that you have with Christ is going to continue on forever and ever without end. Some people have a very flawed view of 
Christian perseverance because they don't understand that our eternal life begins the moment of regeneration and faith. I have many things that I have purchased over the course of the last decade. Uh, When I moved to New York in 2008, I moved here with a backpack, and that's all that I owned. But over the course of my marriage and over the course of the just the way we accumulate things, I have gathered a house full and a garage full of stuff. And many of the things that I have have a warranty to them. And some of them even have what is called a lifetime warranty. Now, thankfully, I have never actually had to call upon one of these warranties. I have never had something break. And I said, you know what? I really think I need to go back to the um, the seller and, and, and call in this lifetime warranty. But that's Part of the reason I think I was surprised to learn that a lifetime warranty is not based on the lifetime of the buyer. It is based on the expected lifetime of the product. For example, there was a case recently, a couple years ago, in Colorado where there was a company that sold windows. And they had a lifetime warranty on windows. If they were breaking or cracking, we will replace them, they said. But... When people tried to get their windows replaced, it became obvious that they weren't really willing to replace anything. In fact, they said that the lifetime of the product was only expected to last for five years. Now, recently, as we have been at home quite a bit and we have had our kids going a little bit cabin crazy and cabin feverish in our home, we decided to send them outside to play and, you know, these things happen. One of our windows got broken by one of our children, and uh, therefore I am now shopping for a window. And as I have been looking for a window, I've realized, wow, those those are very expensive. I hope that these windows last a lot longer than five years. But according to the court, it is okay for a company to determine what they think is the proper lifetime of the products that they sell. They are selling products and telling people, we will replace them with a lifetime warranty, but what they should be saying is, It is a five-year warranty. This is the small print. But the good news is that the gospel has no fine print. The gospel doesn't have a clause like this one. Eternal life means that this new life you get will continue on for eternity. Eternal life begins the moment that the Holy Spirit breathes life of regeneration into you and the spiritual part of you comes alive. And that life doesn't end. It will never taste death again. The true Christian has eternal life and will live in an ever-increasing way for the glory of God. And that is why the regenerated person will persevere because God has given eternal life to them so that they might live for him, both now and in eternity. On the other hand, we need to ask the question, how does physical life relate to eternal life? Earlier, I said to you that physical death is a doorway into eternity. And that is in part true. The body that you now inhabit is certainly going to die. It is going to waste away from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It must because it has been infected with sin and the effects of sin. But God's design for us is to be both physical and spiritual beings, and that does not change. He has promised us that he will give us a new glorified body. As we read the accounts of the resurrected Jesus Christ, we get a sense of what that means for us. We see that Jesus was once again physical. He was corporeal. After his resurrection, he had a physical body. In fact, his physical body had some similarities in many ways to his former body. He walked with them. 
He ate fish with the disciples. He even asked them to take their fingers and to put them into the wounds that remained on his hands and in his side. This is a physical body. But he was also able to hide his appearance from them and to walk through walls into the room with them when the doors are all locked. His, re his resurrection body was different in some ways. And his resurrection body was the epitome of a physical reality. It was the epitome of what we were supposed to be like when we were created physically. And in like manner, when we die, we will be given a new body. Luke Amorelli read for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 52 and 53. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So you've got your body, but it's going to wear something that is imperishable. It will be immortal. If you are in Christ, you are promised a new body that will never weaken, it will never wear out, it will never waste away. And for those who feel their bodies now wearing out and wasting away, that is great news. You are going to be like Adam or like Eve before the fall, fearlessly and joyfully walking in fellowship with God with a renewed physical and spiritual life. So you have physical life. You need to be born again and have spiritual life. And if you are born again, you will experience and enjoy eternal life. So let me close by sharing with you from the prophet Ezekiel. God showed this man a vision, a vision of a, a, a big valley filled with bones, dried out, sun-bleached bones, a bunch of dead bodies. And as Ezekiel stared out at this massive valley filled with death, God asked him the question, can these bones live? And he said, Lord, you know. And God uh, says this to him, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you will know that I am the Lord. As the chapter unfolds, the result is that the bones hear the word of the Lord, and they do come alive. God puts breath in them, so they live. But what about you? If you are not a Christian, you are spiritually dead. Well, how do you know if you're spiritually alive or dead? You need to know the answer because your eternity hangs on that question. And there's only one thing that makes the difference, and that is what you do with Jesus Christ in this life, during your physical lifetime. Because if you breathe your last breath, it is too late. The Bible says in, John, in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or as Jonathan read for us earlier, this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son of God? We could ask that question in a variety of ways. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you believe that his blood has covered your sin? Do you know and love the resurrected Christ? Have you been born again? Are you spiritually alive? If the answer is no, you must turn 
to Jesus. You must see that what he did by dying on the cross was to take away the sin of people like you and me, people who are unworthy of salvation, who are unworthy of heaven. But by the grace of God, he makes sinners alive and brings them into his family. And that can be you today if you will repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian today, I want you to know that this should be a day of overwhelming delight. It should be a day of joy as you remember that he was raised for your justification. Thank you for paying attention and listening. Please continue to worship by going through the rest of this service on our online services page. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he is alive right now. And we thank you, God, that he rules and reigns with you over all of creation, including every person hearing this right now. Lord, I ask for those who know you that today would be a day of adoration. And for those that don't, that this would be a day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.